This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 506 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I welcome back on the show Dr. Ellen Kirschman. Now, Ellen is the author of I Love a Firefighter and I Love a Cop, and she has just revised the Firefighter edition to include the wildland community and expand on some of the other chapters. So we discuss a host of topics from entry testing to impacts on the family and many, many of the idiosyncrasies that we find amongst the wildland community that are often left out of these discussions. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back... Dr. Ellen Kirschman. Enjoy. Well, Ellen, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming back on the Behind the Shield podcast today. My pleasure. So we're talking about the same book, which is interesting, but there are so many great, great reasons of why we're discussing the same book. Obviously, it's, it's a new edition, um, and there's many, many layers to that, and new chapters and, and new outlooks. Um, before we get into that, I have learned as a student on this podcast so much in the last four years. Um, so before we actually get into the actual book itself, are there any kind of aha um, topics or moments that, that you've had this last four years that have changed your perspective on any of the responder work that you do at the moment? Mm. That's a really interesting question, and it requires um, thinking on my part because after doing this for 40 years, there are not a lot of aha moments uh, for me. Uh, and one of the maybe, I don't think this is an aha moment, but one of them is that, that things aren't changing as, as rapidly as I would hope that they would change, nor are they changing particularly in the direction. I mean, there's there's been a lot more in terms of the fire service, there's been more attention and more research done on mental health and wellness, I think, in the fire service, and particularly looking at the issues of suicide amongst uh, fire service personnel. I have not been involved directly in any of that research. So that that is um, a, a day late and a dollar short, but I'm glad that it's happening now that it's happening. Um, and no, I can't say that I've had any, uh, any real aha moments at all. So it's interesting. I mean, that's a I'm glad that you got that, gave me that response because I think that's just as powerful as if you'd said A, B, C, and D. So what I've seen this last four years, and obviously you and I are somewhat in an echo chamber because we're, you know, you're actually the solution to what we're talking about. And I'm trying to connect, you know, the responder with the solution. Um, but I've seen 
the last four or five years, definitely a lot more discussion with the stigma where through my lens, it seems that people are struggling now is, well, what do I do with that? How do I find that culturally um, competent counselor, psychologist, psychiatrist that I can go to and begin this process of, of you know, healing from this trauma? Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot more people now who would consider themselves to be culturally competent clinicians to work with the first responder population. Um, a few years back, um, two of my colleagues, Joel Fay and Mark Kamina, both of whom are psychologists and retired police officers, the three of us wrote a book called Counseling Cops, What Clinicians Need to Know. And we were addressing that issue about how do you become culturally competent to work with that particular subculture. And sorry to say, we have only one chapter on other first responders, uh, such as the fire service, dispatchers, and so forth. Um, But I still think that there's a lot in that book that is useful, no matter who, what kind of responder you're working with, because the primary message is you need to know that you need to have um, direct experience with that particular population. That means ride alongs, uh, um, hopping on the back of a fire truck, uh, getting inside a, a, a medic van, um, it means you have to examine your own attitudes towards the people that you're dealing with. I think that may be more salient for when you're dealing with cops because people have people tend to like firefighters more than they like police officers. So to sort of correct any biases you might have and learning how to be um, more transparent than many of us were taught to be as clinicians. Um, so I think that there, there are many places you can find some on my website where people can go to look for, quotes, culturally competent um, therapists dealing with the first responder population. Now, how well vetted those people are, I don't know. But my most, uh, my most recent Psychology Today blog, uh, the last maybe three or four of those all have to do with connecting up with a clinician and what it takes to be a good client, because it's not just the clinician. This is two people having to put their heads together and work on an issue. Um, And I I think the major message or takeaway from those uh, blogs are you've got to use your gut. It doesn't make any difference what letters a person has after their name. It doesn't make any difference really what their specialty is, although we do know that some evidence-based specialties have been researched and shown to work better with other problems, um, with some problems better than others. But for the most part, you just have to have trust and a good feeling um, and f- with the person that you are trying to build a relationship with. So a lot of, and most first responders have pretty good gut instincts. And you have to be willing as a client to be honest. An awful lot of first responders are so used to taking care of other people that they will cover up. Uh, They don't want to hurt the therapist. They don't want to upset the therapist. Um, And you certainly don't, and that's one thing about being a culturally competent therapist is that you have to be able to hear a whole bunch of really awful things. 
um, and without tearing up or getting upset or, you know, because you're the first responder is going to be reading you all the time to see if you can hear what they have to say. Um, so you, but you really have to be honest and you have to, you can't be in a rush. And most first responders are always in a rush. Um, you know, so many of you all are um, type A's and, and you hate being uncomfortable. I mean, who does, who likes being uncomfortable? So you may want this flight into health, in which case um, you may just get a superficial, uh, uh, your therapy may just be superficial. So there, um, there are lots of ways in which I think uh, first responders um, have to get over their own, this, you mentioned stigma. They have to get over their own stigma. I mean, I know you get it from everybody around you and it's a bad thing to participate in. And I would tell every first responder, do not make jokes about this stuff. Do not put people down. But I know you do it to yourselves as much as anybody else does it to you. I'm weak. Otherwise, I wouldn't need help from somebody else. Well, that's baloney. You're human. And we all need, we all need help at some points and various points in our lives. And given the level of stress that's been on uh, first responders, you mentioned COVID earlier and, um, and these incredible a fire, wildfire season that seems never to stop, um, all kinds of things. And for police, the kind of social media and uh, anti-police sentiments that have been around, of course you all need help. Um, and so it's, and so are your families. And so it's really important to be honest and to be in your own corner and be supportive of yourself and say, look, I am worth getting some help. Absolutely. Well, another thing that I, that really started to unwrap, and it's, it's interesting because so many of these conversations were after our first one, um, was time and time again, this EAP Russian roulette, where every so often someone would go through their EAP and find a great counselor, but more often than not, oh my goodness, you know, some, some counselors burst into tears, some told the responder to get out of their office, they can't help them. Now you think of someone in crisis and they're faced with that. Well, I obviously am completely insane. Let me just go stick a gun in my mouth and be done with it. So how do we, how do we fix that problem? How do we go to these cities and counties and create that relationship where they are seeking those competent counselors for the responders, maybe separately from you know, their utilities or, or other departments in, in their organization? Well, there's a, um, a model that I really liked that came out of the San Francisco Police Department. And they got together, some officers got together with their union. And the, I guess their insurance came through their union. Not 100% sure about that. And they said, look, rather than... Um, take somebody potluck, like you said, or Russian roulette with an EAP, because EAP providers can often, I don't, I don't know this 100%, but they're often the starting out in their career. So they're low pay, maybe new, kind of green horn type. So in order to get people that are competent to deal with first responders, what the San Francisco did said, the San Francisco Police Department did, they said, we want to select our own providers and we will, um, we want to pay them more 
And we also want to raise the co-payment. I believe this happened many, many years ago. So I think I'm giving you at least a general idea. Um, and then we will select these providers. We will meet with them once a month. I, I used to be one of those providers back in the day. And we'll meet with them once a month. And we will require that they do things like ride along come in and teach some classes, let's say something on sleep hygiene, uh, work with our peer support people so that they become somewhat of a familiar face around the department. And we know who, we get a chance to eyeball them and relate to them. So when somebody comes to our counseling unit and asks for a therapist, we can say, hey, here's Ellen. I just had lunch with her last week. She's okay. Or here's, you know, here's James, you know, somebody. So they built up that familiarity and that competency by actually handpicking these clinicians, paying them a bit more than their regular EAP providers get, and requiring of them that they do something for the department pro bono so that people get to know them. And you can say to the clinician, look, you come in and, for example, teach a class in sleep hygiene at a, at a watch briefing, we're going to eventually be you know, referring people to you. So this is going to be an investment in your own practice. It'll be worth your while to know this. What I've observed in other cities that I have worked in, and I've worked in an awful lot of them, is they will use the EAP. Somebody will come back and say, um, gee, that clinician answered the door in their pajamas, fell asleep in the middle of my session, um, uh, made me uncomfortable because I thought they were too friendly, um, or as you said, burst into tears. Or one of the stories in our Counseling Cops book is for a cop who came in after two fatal shootings, uh, the therapist said to him, so are you ready to stop being a trained killer? I mean, horrible thing to say. My mother would have known that was a horrible thing to say. But there was no feedback loop. The client doesn't know who to report this to. The city doesn't report it to anybody. The EAP people don't come in and check on how their uh, individual sessions or individual clinicians are being regarded. So um, what happens is the, the client stops going to therapy, says, oh, my God, these people are all crazy. And, um, and, and the, everything just keeps on going the way it's always gone. So I think it's really important to try to, to build a feedback loop. I don't know how you would press the... I think you press the EAP into doing this by telling them, by doing your own follow-up if you are the city or the, the people who are negotiating with them or the union. You have to give them the feedback and get them worried that you're going to drop the contract with them because this is about money, right? So that's that's that would be my answer to your question about how do we do this? Now, there are other places that um, uh, have some resources on my website, but um, First Help um, keeps a list of 
what they consider to be culturally competent clinicians. I don't know how they vet those people, but they're, and they, they have a national searchable database. So if you're in Baltimore you, and you're calling, you can find somebody from Baltimore. There is also a, an organization, this is a for-profit organization called Cortico, and I believe they've just been bought up by Police One, huge website. In Cortico, because they were, I was in some negotiations with them, so I wanted to know exactly how they vetted the, their other clinicians. And they had a big vetting process. And what they what their uh, they have software that they sell to departments, and then it would be downloaded on some kind of an intranet, so all the employees could get it. And it, it there's a GPS attached, so that they know where you are and what clinicians are located in your area. And uh, it was run by a, a psychologist who's got David Black, who's got great credentials, and he personally vetted all of the clinicians that he uses. So that would be another option. Um, as you know, I volunteer at the First Responder Support Network in California, and um, we have a, on our website, frsn.org, there are a list of culturally competent clinicians that we have all worked with and we all know to be culturally competent. And I think we have them in most in California, but several other states. There may be four or five states. So you can go to that website, click on the resource tab, and then go down and click on looking for a clinician. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. Because I think that's the problem is you probably noticed this police and fire, we're very siloed. So you might have two departments right next to each other. One is an absolute cluster and the other one has got their stuff together, you know, and, it, and they don't knowledge share a lot of times. So we have an organization here, the Florida um, Safety and Health Collaborative. I think I got that right. Um, Dustin Hawkins, one of the members created was called Redline Rescue, which is the same kind of app, but that's actually for free. Um, David Black was on this podcast. So, so he told Cortico's story. And then with San Francisco, do you ever work with um, Mark Foreman? He was a retired uh, San Francisco cop. Now he's a psychologist in California. I don't. He may be another volunteer for the First Responder Support Network, but I don't know him. Okay. Personally. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, another area um, that I have learned in the last four years, it was a huge aha moment for me, was childhood trauma. So I think the same way as the first responders look at the carcinogens in our gear, you know, whether it's from the fire or even within the gear, um, as the cause for cancer, it's a very myopic lens, I think. We're not talking about nutrition and fitness and sleep deprivation, especially. I feel the same in the first responder professions where, yes, we've kind of accepted it, but it's like, oh, it's what you saw. As I've evolved myself and they're learning, I realize how important childhood trauma is and how many of us bring so much in before we ever throw that uniform on. So um, what have you viewed that? And also I'd love to kind of put this to you. I, I've seen them spend so much money. I've been through four departments, taken those god-awful written psych tests um, and polygraphs, which I successfully lied through all of them because it's smoke and mirrors. And that's not a badge of honor. I just, the first time I told the truth in the fire service, I didn't get the job. So I was like, okay, loud and clear. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but to take that money and rather than do 
some of these check the box tests that they do to bring us on, do a good background check, but then use that money and maybe do three or four or five counseling sessions as we go through our orientation so that we have the ability to not only create a, a relationship with a counselor, but also maybe even offload some of that trauma before we enter the job. Ah, well, all right. You've just opened it up, up <laughs> box here, James. Um, I don't do pre-employment screening. I mean, I think I spent a really brief part of my career, so I can't really talk about that. But I have always said I think we'd be better off psychologists screening the departments that people are about to work with and screening the individuals to see how well they treated their employees. Um, so let me start with your first part of what you said about childhood trauma. I've been saying this, and many of my colleagues have been saying this for a very long time. We, th we think that maybe 85% of the first responder population have been, have some childhood trauma. And when you think about how childhood trauma, becoming a premature adult because mom and dad were not capable um, of taking care of things and dealing with chaos is a perfect segue to being a first responder because that's what you do. You deal with chaos and you deal with control. When things are out of control, that's when you all step in to control them. So learning to control the world around you if you are a victim of childhood trauma of one sort or another is an early skill. And so, it, again, it, it's, it's a, it can be a setup for PTSD if you've got a lot of bad luck as an adult, too. So we, we make this really, um, it's kind of a terrible joke, I hope I don't offend anybody, but about the people who come through the First Responder Support Network retreats. Now, mind you, these are people that have some symptoms of trauma. So what I'm saying doesn't apply to people necessarily who do not have symptoms of trauma, right? So we're looking at a selected population of folks. But we'd like to say to them, if you would, uh, it's a six-day retreat, right? So we like to say to each other, the staff, we don't, we don't, well, sometimes we actually say this to the clients. If you would just tell us about your absent alcoholic, narcissistic parent, we could cut three days off this retreat. Because that's very often where it winds up. That's very often where the feelings of helplessness, the feelings of not being good enough, um, that drive, that horrible, painful drive to be perfect all the time, um, that inability to ask for help in a timely way because you think it makes you seem weak. All of that is related back to some of those early childhood traumas. And we can just, we can almost, because I've been doing it for 12 years and the, the program has been around for more than 20 and we've had well over a thousand first responders come through. Um, uh, that's really where it winds up for most everybody and much to their surprise. And we do these family retreats too, they're called SOS, Significant Others and Spouses Retreats. Uh, 
And that's where that also winds up. I mean, our, I'll, when we talk about families later on, I can say more about that. But the childhood trauma is um, a very significant portion of why people either get PTSD or why they don't heal from it or why their coping skills maybe are pretty bad. Um, uh, and it's in, to teach about it would be one thing. You're, now I want to get to your idea of couldn't we, instead of doing these pre-employment screening tests, psych tests, couldn't we start counseling right away? Um, nice idea. I'm not sure that it would work. Now, what we know is that many police departments across the United States have started to these mandatory one-year checkups, um, like you know, going to the dentist once a year, and that you go in and it's perfectly confidential. I, I don't know if you have to see a certain clinician or you get to choose one. The department never knows anything about it. Um, you can sit there and talk about how your favorite baseball team is doing, or you can talk about what your year has been like, how your relationships are with your families. Um, and it was an idea I wasn't sure it was going to catch on, and apparently it has caught on. And so you know that if this year you didn't have anything to talk about, well, maybe next year you will remember that you had a fairly pleasant, innocuous uh, conversation with this clinician and you'll call her up again or call him up again. So they, they seem to be working really pretty well. Now, you know, there's more research, of course, that needs to be done about whether they have any, uh, you know, long-term positive consequences in preventing PTSD or at least making sure that people get help sooner for PTSD because it's, you can't avoid it given what you all do for a living, right? You're going to just see some pretty terrible stuff. Uh, you know, there was a time when we did stress management training in academies. You know, you got two or three hours. Um, when I put myself through that, my doing research for my first edition of the, I love the firefighter, I did put myself through a truncated Fire Academy, it was for, just for media. And the whole time I was there, I never heard the word, any emotions ever discussed, never heard the word family come up. It was all about fire science. Now they like they had five or five days to, to let the media people understand what they needed them to understand. I, that, that was just a given of it. But it was really clear to me that, that there was something missing there. Um, so when we start to give classes in the academy, for two or three hours of stress management. That's all well and good, but I think there's no Velcro. I think it doesn't stick to people that haven't had any real experience. So you're sitting, the young folks are sitting in the class and you know, they're all enthusiastic and they're saying, this will never happen to me. Oh, that, that, old, that old guy over there, that damn because, and they'll make up a story. Uh, I'll never be that careless. Uh, or I'll never be that callous, you know, whatever it is that they're saying to themselves. It's kind of like doing premarital counseling with people who are totally over head over heels in love with each other. They can't hear it. So I think the, that while you can maybe plant a few seeds in the beginning, what you really need to do is to follow up with those kind of counseling 
or educational sessions and start to hit people at the three and five year increments um, down the road, I think. Um, I'm not sure that, and, and you're right about doing better backgrounds. That's some discussion is going on currently, at least in law enforcement, because we need the backgrounders to talk to the pre-employment screening psychologists. They're in silos too, much of the time. And the psychologist can say, look, here's how this person looked on their, um, um, on their assessments that they took. This suggests to me something or other that you should dig into. But because the psychologist, at least for law enforcement, is the very last hurdle before someone gets it, they, they've already gotten a conditional offer of a job. I'm not sure. Is it the same in the fire service? Um, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. okay. So um, by that time, the background is done before you see the psychologist. So that needs to be switched around as well. And again, all of this costs money to do two background investigations. But we know that just tons of people with childhood trauma, significant childhood trauma, get through the screening. The screening is only a screening out process. It doesn't tell you, not much of a screening in process, who's going to be good at this job, who's not going to be damaged by the job, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, learning about the ACEs score, that seems like that would be a very pertinent thing to know. That's really, really um, a valuable instrument. And again, you people have got to tell the truth about it. And as you as you confessed about yourself, um, some people are able to just check off, uh, check off the boxes. Nothing ever happened to me. I had a really happy household. Yeah. And it's, I've heard that from um, Save a Warrior, that, that group, that retreat, um, where they do an ACEs test at the beginning, an ACEs test, I, I forget how many days into it. And partly as well, what they're realizing is that some of those traumas are so locked in, even the individual isn't aware. Like I, I was in a house fire. I wrote a book last year and it was only when I started write, write, excuse me, writing the book that I remembered that I almost died when I was four years old. And it wasn't like it, it wasn't a hidden trauma, I don't think, as some sort of coping mechanism, but the, it had definitely been truncated and filed away. And uh, yeah, so I mean, you think about some of these things and I've had other guests that have you know come on and in, in their adult life, a smell made them remember that they were molested by a grandparent or you know whatever it was. Sure. And the, the, by the way, I have your book and it will be going up on my resource page when I get around to adding to adding things. I'm kind of slow at that. <laughs> Thank the, you. The other, the other thing that um, we did at the First Responders Support Network is Mark Camino, who is the research director in one of the co-authors of the Counseling Comps book. Mark has developed a new screening tool called SAFER, S-A-F-E-R. And I think he's got a safer R, meaning safer revised. And he has normed this on the people who are, who are actually working or coming through our retreat because some of the other um, trauma inventories that we were using, because we give those to people at the beginning and the end of the retreat, as you just described, were simply um, inappropriate for first responders, such as the question, have you ever seen red and blue blinking lights? Duh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Or have you ever, there's something about, have you ever been unable to read a passage? Um, I can't, I can't remember exactly the questions that were really inappropriate for first responders. So he has developed this new uh, screening tool and you might want to talk to him about it um, because it's, it's pretty interesting. And he is a very uh, thorough, very detailed academic type who also used to be a cop, but not for long because he's much more academic and he, um, so he worked really hard to put this together. So you might want to talk to him about it. Beautiful. Yeah, we'll definitely make that happen. Thank you. Um, so another area where I really, like you said, the, the, the mental health element is, is a hard sell and it shouldn't. And again, it's because there's that stigma of weakness. And I think even that comes from a facade of, you know, films basically we were raised on and, you know, the yeah. term Terminators and Rambos of the world. Um, but what I see as the buy-in is when you look at the tactical community, the sporting community, and understanding that they all have psychologists for um, improving their performance. So how do you, or either, either through storytelling or a description, how do we explain to responders that when you process trauma, because I think I was very lucky. I went through, I had some things when I was young, don't consider it a hugely traumatic childhood by any means, but I grew up on a farm you know, saw my dad heal animals. He was a vet. We grew up and we had a big kitchen table that we'd always eat at. I exercise. I had nature. I mean, all these, these very positive things, animals around me. Um, so I can see why, thank goodness, I was given the, the gift of some great foundations to deal with what I went through as a child and then what I saw as an adult. Um, but when, the, the message that when we work through our trauma, that we become more resilient, that we become a, a higher performer in the police, fire, whatever profession that we're in. How do you, uh, your question is, how do you get that message? What What's the benefit of going through all this trouble? Yeah, so that would be my, the, the way I think that you explain it to the young responder or the one that's been, you know, buried in stigma and the same with injury prevention, all these things. But the, with the mental one is understanding when, when you process trauma, you are going to be a much more resilient mentally, um, more resilient mentally and, and a higher performer overall, whether it's on the fire ground, whether it's, you know, with your weapon drawn, whether it's de-escalating a scene. Um, how, how are you able to portray the message of owning what's going on inside your head so therefore you can be an even better version than you were before? Hmm. Well, I would come at it quite differently. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not young anymore. And I'm not somebody who, I think the pursuit of perfection and self-improvement is part of our problem. And when I say ours, I mean ours as a society. We are constantly trying to be better at everything. And, and rather than that, so that would be kind of, a, that would be a hard message for me to give to somebody, I think. And it also feels to me like um, it leaves the employer out of the picture as well. I mean, do we want people to become better and faster so that they can do their jobs? Uh, better and earn more money if let's say I know these are we're talking about nonprofit places but um, do you want 
somebody to become better at what they do so that their department can look better? I mean, it can get mixed up, I think. Um, it may be easier to um, talk about that when we're talking about a for-profit place. Work 20 hours a day so that your, your employer can make more money off what you did. It would not be, a, not be a message I would want to send to somebody. Get over your trauma so you can work harder and faster. Because that's what traumatized people do. They work harder and faster. Um, I think something more along the lines of, of radical self-acceptance. Uh, that, you know, first responders are realists. And you have to be in order to do your job. So the learning to accept that your own biography, and that also means your own innate resilience, how you may have handled something um, better than you perhaps think you did, or how you deserve the kind of help that is out there. Um, that would be the, that, that what happened to you as a child, let's say, or what happened to you in the field, it's most of the time never your fault. I mean, people make mistakes, but then you're not making shoes, you're making critical decisions under horrible circumstances, so you're bound to make a mistake. So I'm, I'd be much more, you might be more successful selling it your way, but I'm saying that the way I sell it is, is that to, to accept what it means to be a human being. I'm a Buddhist, you know, so um, a lot of what I say really um, falls into line with that kind of accepting things as, as they are and being kind to oneself as well as being kind to other people. And, and you know, and I can't sell that in a very woo-woo way or nobody would pay any attention to me. But, you know, after, after 40 years, they have paid attention. So I guess I'm doing it in a way that people can, people can hear. Um, the other thing that I would talk about, too, in general, and I get absolutely nowhere with this probably, but, you know, the, it's the toxic masculinity. And the fact that these are youthful male dominated professions and that as a society we have driven men to be in this constant pursuit of of strength um self-reliance you know independence toughness all of that to the great to their own detriment and i don't know how we would talk about that in a firehouse um uh unless we get the more mature firefighters to talk about it. And I think things like peer support, like being self-disclosing. Um, I, you know, I, I tell a story in, in uh, it's actually the first edition of, of a of fire captain who started just having these around the table conversations with the young boots. And, you know, and they, they ranged from adolescent high school locker room stuff, you know, uh, about sex and farting and all that stuff. And But then they got really serious. And that opening up the atmosphere in his, on his shift 
with these young folks to really be able to talk about stuff that was deeply important to them. And then he became somebody they went to as an individual. And then he could send them off to, um, to a counselor if, if, uh, cause he was also a peer supporter if, if they needed something beyond what he could offer to them. So I, I think that we're all, every individual is really worthy of getting the help and coming to terms and understanding their own, their own histories, not from a point of view of pathology or a point of view of you're broken, let's make you pet better, perfect. Um, that would be, how, and that's a little, it's a little, what I'm saying to you, I'm, as I'm hearing myself talk, it's a little slushy. You know, it's a little little difficult to put into a bullet point uh, PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's interesting to, for two reasons. Firstly, I didn't present my what I was trying to get across very well. So, for the man or woman who believes that the most masculine and or feminine way of dealing with their trauma is to shove it down. That's strength, that's courage. I'm trying to reprogram them. No, strength and courage is processing it. And therefore, you know, you, you will have a clearer mind. Yeah, there's a, there's a growth, there's an improvement for your performance. If you understand that courage and vulnerability are actually from facing those traumas, going to, you know, whatever works for you, equine therapy, you know, psychology, whatever, but not suppressing it. But I love that you brought up toxic masculinity because even though just like the hashtag Me Too got totally destroyed and people that were actually abused kind of got lost in this wash of, you know, politics as always, um, toxic masculinity, you know, you get this image of this kind of wafy, limp-wristed, you know, white man wearing a flowing shirt and you know hanging out with feminists where the reality to me is it's a, it's the mask i mean the facade of masculinity that we've been we've been told the seals the sas the pjs the green berets the swat and fire and all these incredible men and women that are some of the most physically and mentally resilient and courageous individuals i've ever had the pleasure to bring on all have a yin and a yang and I think that's the facade. It's not, to me, I think we, we've completely mystified what masculinity is. Masculinity, to me, is walk softly but carry a big stick. I uh-huh. love that kind of idea. Whereas I think what, if people take a step back, what we're really pushing against is, again, the Terminator, the Rambo, this kind of facade that that's what men are, which is right. complete crap. Men don't, you know, that was one of those movies where the guy slaps the woman because she's, you know, hysterical. Right. That, that's iconic. No, that's slapping a woman. That's awful. <laughs> so understanding that a man or a woman can be strong when they're running towards danger or running to a burning building or running into the Vegas shooting to drag someone out. But then the soft part is firstly what made them run in the first place, which is, you know, kindness and compassion, but also after the fact that understanding that that has, has an effect. And then we have to be kind and compassionate to ourselves. Right. Well, I, one of my favorite teachers in graduate school is a man named Charles Hamden Turner. Um, Charles is British, and he would show up to class. Um, he had everything on, but little of it was zipped or tied or buckled. The guy was just a mess, you know, in many ways. And he's written, he's a brilliant man, and he's written a whole bunch of, of books. And I quote him all the time. One, one of his books is called Maps of the Mind. It's an old book, and you might absolutely love it. It's partly illustrated. Um, 
he wants to get rid of, or not get rid of, but he talks about that same bifurcation that you're talking about. And he talks about bringing values, opposing values together. So he would say things like to be tough without being tender is to be brutal. To be that courage without caution is recklessness. And he could, you know, you, you name the value and he could split it up that way. And that's what you're saying, I think. And I think it's, it's really important to get people to see that. Um, but it's, pretty, it's a pretty um, abstract idea for many people. I, th- I think that one of the ways perhaps to find an in with younger first responders well, they'd be, is to emphasize the physicality of trauma. What happens in the brain? Particularly in the fire service, since everybody's an EMT, they have some bit of medical background, right? Or not everybody's an EMT, but many are. So um, to show how the brain operates and what happens on trauma, what happens with trauma and how, um, uh, and I think that that is a different sell to people. It's because we don't get to vote on that, right? That we're hardwired that way um, since um we're the cave person days and we have this negative bias override and there's a whole bunch of things that that can be explained i think in an interesting way that leads to saying to talking about self-care what you are doing to your brain if you are not caring for yourself both physically and psychologically or if the way you're caring for yourself psychologically is to drink a fifth of jim beam every night um you know or a lot of beer what that's doing to your brain and your body. Um, and that kind of self-care, I think, comes from self. I, I'm, I'm preaching self-compassion, I guess, rather than self-perfection. Yeah, and I think you're right, 100% with the perfection lens as well, because I think that's, again, been perpetuated with social media. And there are some phenomenal high performers out there. You type in skateboard, you type in you know, gymnasts, and you'll see these amazing humans. But the thing is, that's what they've done their whole life. But I think it's also very discouraging. And again, it creates that facade like I grew up with with the films of, oh, well, I can't do that. Therefore, what's the point? I can't have that kind of physique. So why even bother exercising? So I, th- I find it could be very, very defeating and, and discouraging when you're looking at perfection because you're never going to get there. However, this is really interesting. Yesterday, I was going someplace in my car and I was listening to uh, NPR, as I always do. And there was a discussion of the Olympics and a discussion of these amazing people that you're talking about, and particularly of the new uh, sports, the skateboarding, beach volleyball and surfing, I believe. And one of the panelists made a very interesting observation. She said that Unlike the elite athletes, the gymnasts and uh, people who've been training their entire life with their eye on the Olympics, and that's rigorous and I think in some cases probably damaging, but it's, you know, the skateboarders, the surfers, 
the beach volleyball people came out of community. They were not planning to be in the Olympics. There weren't any places for them in the Olympics. But, and that what she was observing was how much they cared for each other and how they applauded their, their rivals when they did well and took, seemed to take great pleasure and admiration when somebody other than themselves still did well. And that that came because they were community first before becoming, you know, elite athletes. And that to me says something about how you talk about stigma. I mean, what Simone Biles did to support her own mental health and the fact that I don't know, I only know what I see in the paper, but that she received accolades from that rather than, and she made room for another young woman to compete. And to me, that kind of helping, I mean, I think the only way we're going to get rid of stigma is for the first responders to understand that they, to help each other pass things and to normalize the fact that we all got something, <laughs> you know, we're all a work in progress, right? Um, and to cut the talk, the bad talk. And it's nice when leaders do that as well, but I think most line level people don't connect that well with their leaders, you know, they're, 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 so it's not that it much, it doesn't impress them that much. Um, but I was just struck by what they were, because I'd never thought about that before, that they came out of community, those folks. The, the, those new sports. See, and that's such an interesting observation for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I saw a lot of negativity aimed at Simone Biles, and I see that's coming from the same place as a lot of the fire service 10 years ago. They were like, rub some dirt in it, stop being, you know, a pussy, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, yeah. and, and you know, get on with it. And, you know, I, again, I, I admired her was the moment I saw that because obviously, you know, I understand now. And one of my guests said, would you want the cop next to you to hide the fact that he was about to have a breakdown? Would you want the firefighter backing you up as you go make an entry and go try and search a two-story house for a baby right. to be the one that's hiding the fact they're going to just melt down halfway through it? No, you want that that honesty. You want that ownership. And, and plus, she's got how many bloody medals for this country already? I think she's already far surpassed expectations. But another beautiful thing was the humanity we saw. I remember one of the skateboarding events, one of the girls got her and it was amazing the young age of some of those athletes too. But they carried her on their shoulder, you know, when they went to the medal. There was uh, an Italian skater, the Japanese skater won and uh, his flag was all kind of wrapped around. So we went and grabbed his flag and held it up for him. There was actually a refugee team this year in the Olympics. Ah, yes. So these are all beautiful human stories of kindness and compassion and strength and courage that came out of that. So yes, it may not have been the usual Olympics, but to me, there was some phenomenal stories and messages that came out of that. Great, great. So I think because fire service people are very active for the most part, physically active, um, using, uh, again, to sell self-care, maybe using some of those kinds of examples um uh, would would minimize the the feeling that i'm weak or i'm broken absolutely uh, 
Well, I want to get to the, the family and also the wildland fire because obviously that, that's a big part of the, the second edition. But just quickly, we've kind of skated around it a little bit, but another, you know, big aha moment for me, sleep deprivation is something that I've, that's the dead, dead horse I flog over and over again. I think we discussed that in the last conversation, but, um, organizational stress. Now I know this firsthand. The last apartment I was at, it, it, I was trying to drive you know, all kinds of initiatives, fitness training, because I saw that we had, you know, some areas that we were really lacking in and God forbid something happened, we weren't going to be able to facilitate, you know, some of our people couldn't even wear a mask without freaking out. I mean, it was, it was bad. And I was, you know, one of, one of several voices that was trying to drive it forward. And I kept getting beat down and beat down, shut up, we're fine. There's no problem here. Um, and so, the, my family, and we'll get into that moment, the, the mirror for the responder, really started like seeing every time you come home, you're pissed off, you're angry. Um, and I realized within that place specifically how detrimental poor or a lack thereof of leadership can be on responders, especially a lot of the men and women that I sur- surround myself with are the responders that are trying to affect change. They are the ones that are trying to do good in their department. And I see that in a lot of them. And I think even sadly, that's one of the one of the causes of even some of the suicides that we see. So what is your lens on the role of organizational stress in the overall mental health puzzle? Well, I started out my career as an organizational consultant because it was really clear to me um, that organizational stress, well, we know this for sure, uh, it far out exceeds line of duty stress. It, any survey anybody's ever taken, that's how it comes up. Um, so I um, early on, I wrote, I think the very first thing I got published on was called Buddha in Search of the Barrel. And we're talking about a story about, you know, um, this, this is a, a, there's lots of apocryphal or I'm not sure that's the right word. Lots of stories about Buddha. So it's almost like the fire service, you know, story after story after story. Um, and the one story is that he's walking up along the river and then there's people floating by in the river, drowning. He jumps in, he pulls them out, he jumps in, he pulls them out. He's with another monk. And finally, or the monks jumping in and pulling people out. And then finally, uh, the Buddha walks up the uh, back upstream and the monk says to him, where are you going? Why aren't you helping me pull these people out? He said, I'm going to go up to see who's throwing them in. So uh, I think that the organizational stress is huge. Uh, and unfortunately, your experience is very common. They, to, for one person to fight a, an, an organization, it really works out for that person. Or if it does work out, they, by the time they've gotten it, they probably have ulcers and all kinds of things. I mean, take the workers' comp people and that whole situation, that whole organization. And we know that betrayal is a really huge part of trauma. I don't know that I've met a tra- traumatized person in my career. I'm I'm sure I have, but for the most part, every trauma has some element of betrayal in it, whether it's the communities turned on the first responder, there's been a personal betrayal, partners let them down, our loved ones let them down, but a lot of it is administrative betrayal. Um, 
I, here's what I say, and it's really very cynical and, and speaks to the fact that I've been probably doing this for too long, right? There are no good organizations. Organizations exist for their own survival, period. There are good people in organizations, but the organization itself is interested only in its own survival. So, I mean, the more good people we can get into decision-making positions, the better off we are, but I'm not sure how you go about, about doing that. Um, there have been, um, I, yeah, so it's, I think what I find missing like in academies at the lower end for the new people coming in is, is some classes on how to manage your career what to expect. And when I'm going to relate this now back to childhood trauma that you talked about. When you have childhood trauma, what drives many people into first responder professions is they're looking for the family they didn't have. So they get recruited and they get told, we'll have your back no matter what. You join, we're the new, your new blue family, your new red family. Uh, and what it turns out to be is the most fickle family you'll ever know. So when you have these expectations that, oh, these folks are going to take care of me and have my back, when they don't, the element of betrayal is huge and kicks off those early traumatic experiences where the people who were supposed to protect you and not hurt you it kicks off, it's a trigger for those old memories. And that, and then that all gets wrapped up together. And then, then we have a person who's suffering. So, you know, I would like to make people be more realistic <laughs> about uh, what to expect from an organization. I'd like them to have more minimal expectations. And I'd like them to understand that not everybody gets a good supervisor. If you're in a job for 30, 25, 30 years, you're going to get some bad supervisors. You know, just do, do what you can to get through it. Move on. Um, learn how to take care of yourself inside an organization. And what I say, at least for law enforcement, and nobody ever wants to hear this because it's expensive and impractical. We shouldn't be asking people to do this job for 30 years. Some people can do it for 30 and be okay. It's a great training ground to do something else. Some people shouldn't do it for more than five or seven, and then they should move on. It'd be better for them. It'd be better for the community. So um, yes, it's a huge problem. And no, somebody's smarter than me is going to have to figure out how to fix it. Cause I, I don't know. Bureaucracies are terrible. Yeah. Thanks. Well, it's so important to hear. And thank you so much because I mean, these are, these are the, the truth bombs that, uh, you know, people <laughs> need. And I think, you know, especially in the fire service, I've talked about this a lot, the way we do it now, especially with the, you know, the average work week, 56 hours. And, you know, it sounds great. One day off, one day on two days off. No, it's three days on one day off when you look of an eight hour day. So that's not, you know, um, put it that way but while we're doing that it's a young man's game or a young woman's game you cannot sustain and some people do and then you get the stats that we have you know five years after retirement most of us are dead I don't want that I ended up retiring after 14 years at a, a 
universe given crossroads um and ended up doing this full time and i can't advocate enough if if you're in a great department and the working environment's good and and you know you're you're under good leaders and you think you can go further absolutely but if you're one of these people that you know isn't happy or you just feel your health starting to deteriorate you're gaining weight you know like you said, we have such an incredible skill set that can be used in so many other ways. And you will get to wake up next to your wife or husband every morning and see your child at breakfast time. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the statistic about uh, five years after you retire, you're dead. Um, I would double check that one because it's really, really hard to pin down. And I don't want to send a message to people that feels like a prophecy. So um, I'm, I'm, when I was researching another book and we looked into that, comparing in one major city, the, the uniform people to the employees who were not uniform, and it, that did not hold up. But there's more research that needs to be done. So I'm not exactly sure. Now, maybe you're alive, but you're sick, <laughs> you know, or divorced. Yeah, there's lots of ways that damages you, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, then speaking of a population that's not given much of a voice, aside from dispatchers, another population not given much of a voice. Um, and you know, the, the fact that they sit in darkness for 12 hours a day, you know, for, you know, so many days in a row and then they never see daylight and, you know, in that same seat. That's an entire other discussion as well. But the wildland community, I've had some, you know, some hot shots, some um, smoke jumpers. I've had an Australian firefighter, wildland firefighter. And over and above the urban firefighting that we do, the the toll of the seasonal firefighter is, is another entire layer. I know that's one chapter that you added in your second uh, edition of the book. So kind of lead me through your journey of learning about that community and, and then some of the the stresses you you kind of peel back not only on on the responder but also on the wildland firefighter family okay well it's totally amazing to me when i look back over the first edition which was written 14 years ago that the only mention i made of wildland firefighting was that i was sorry i didn't have enough room to write about it but at 14 years ago, we the world wasn't on fire in the way it is now. It really, I mean, there certainly were wildland fires, but not anything like what we're seeing now. So there were many aha moments for me in trying to research um, what's going on in wildland firefighting. And, and also people that I've met who have been coming through our first responder support network telling us they've never seen fire behavior like this in their lives. These are veteran firefighters, and this, this was frightening in a way they've never been frightened before. They felt helpless in a way they'd never been helpless before. Um, and the, the, all of the, um, the, the, I was just learning so much more than I had, because I think when I went through that fire academy, too, it was just mostly about structure fires. So the, the, the couple of aha moments for me was how ignored this group of people was and that the, the suicides were going up and no one had been paying any attention to it, that there were really very few resources. Um, I have many now, the ones I could find in the back of, that, uh, of the firefighter book. Um, and that um, 
how, because my focus is general, is mostly on the family, how um, difficult the re-entry was. Um, first, I think I learned more than I had known before about the, what it's like to fight a, a wildland fire and um, how it does require you to be just sort of a major athlete and how uncomfortable it is and you're sleeping on the ground and you're the air, you know, carrying all this weight. So, I mean, I had a, a lot to learn about all of that. And the fact that you are separated from your family for so long and also to learn that the difference between an urban firefighter who's on a strike team, but he has or she has health insurance and a steady job and pretty decent pay and a seasonal firefighter has none of those things or rarely has uh, some of those things. So definitely it is a young person's profession. And I guess one of the things that surprised me the most was the frequency that I heard from people about coming back and re-entering after a fire season when it was finally over, the levels of depression that firefighters had in the absence of, I mean, it's like they're recovering from adrenaline and it's just a huge um, uh, rebound from the adrenaline, from being up all the time. And also sleep deprivation, as you said, which is really critical in so many different professions. And coming home and then getting sick because their immune system has been compromised because they've been functioning at such a high level of stress that they are feeling alone without their team um, and without a purpose and they don't and trying to reconnect with your family and things have happened at home and you know maybe you didn't like them maybe you did like them but you know who is this who are these people that i'm married to and who are these children and just the the difficulty of people getting warmed up to one another again and family expectations not meeting what the firefighters expectations are and the wisdom of maybe leaving this firefighter <laughs> alone for a while but you're so eager and anxious to be together again and you missed each other but only one of you is able to function fully as a family member because you need time to recover from what you've been through and that recovery looks like depression sometimes sometimes it is depression sometimes it looks like it and that the the advice I was picking up from veteran firefighters and other um, psychologists who deal with this population to give somebody some space, let them go off by themselves if they need to and go fishing or hiking when you, when you haven't seen them for weeks or months. It seems like a counterintuitive advice to a family, um, but but that giving people having more spaciousness at home seems to be important because you're dealing with a sort of combat weary um, individual who's been pumping out stress hormones for weeks or months, not sleeping well, um, and is really in many ways absolutely exhausted and needs to recover. And I can tell, I want to tell you a story about that. So Jana Price Sharps, Dr. Jana Price Sharps, I don't know if you've had her on your program, but um, she's terrific. 
And she says that, um, that there's just been such a cognitive load on these people when they come home. Um, and it could be, uh, there could also be some grief or guilt at seeing that there's so much destruction that they have all seen. Um, and that, then, then they're on this, been on this neurochemical high and they just need a chance to recover uh, from that and, and try to process. You used the word process before, process what they've been through because you don't have so much time to do that in the field. Um, so I, I just thought putting it in those terms again, those physical terms, the neurochemical high was really very uh, important. So I tell a story in here and I, I, I've changed the names, but I actually know these people. And um, it was for a firefighter who was doing fire mapping um, and a plane went down, crashed, and crashed in the fire right, right near where the fire was burning. So, and the, so there was fuel, all, you know, all over people, and it was horrible and frightening. And this person had to be airlifted out and many, many, many uh, months of recovery, serious wounds, um, Oxycontin, you know, addiction, all, you know, all that's all that can happen after such a catastrophic accident. And this person's only motivation in life was to get better so he could back get back to his team because he felt like he was letting people down by not being out there when there were more fires burning and kicked. Uh, kicked the oxy um, cold turkey, which was a very bad mistake medically and physically. Um, and his wife said that in the, that made her angrier at him than anything <laughs> that, that he did that, that, that the most important thing for him was to get back to his team. And part of his self-discovery was how other directed he felt he had been. His need to be accepted by the team, his need to do his job, his need to be perfect. And, and, and even in some recollection that he thought maybe he should never have gotten on that plane in the first place because of the way it was being handled. But he overcame that little voice. We all have that little voice that says, uh-uh, don't go there. Oh, but I need to. My team needs me. I need to feel like I'm helping and all of that. So apparently that is not an atypical story um, and the not atypical for, uh, for the families, the wildland families. They, I mean, they really have it harder, I think, than the urban families. I mean, I don't mean no, this is not a, the Olympics or the world competition of who has it harder, but um, they, uh, uh, and at some point in that chapter, as you know, I say, look, it looks like it's all on you, family members, because not only do you have to bear with being separated and taking care of everything, including all the ch children and all the stuff at home, then this person comes home and they're not ready to enter, re-enter the family. So that you gotta, you gotta take care of yourself then. That seems like a lot to lay on the family, but I don't see any other way. Um, uh, to do it uh, and that they, to be prepared to, for it and to have your own, as a family member, to have a support system of your own. 
it seems like people are paying more attention now to the mental health and well-being of wildland firefighters. Yeah, well, from what I'm getting there, like you said, there's way more fire. I think you quoted that Australia, a, f- a fifth of Australia burned during the season, which is just insane. I've been there and you know, I drove across some of the outbacks. So I can't imagine a fifth of that country on fire. But um, also the staffing is getting less and less and less. So they're doing, having to do more with less. But the, the punctuating the shifts, whether it's a 24-hour shift, whether it's a 12-hour shift, whether it's a four-month deployment. A lot of my friends were just down in Surfside at the the collapse, so they responded with USAR units. You know, we, you know, some of my friends went to Katrina. So whether it's wildland, whether it's that kind of deployment, um, I think that is absolutely, you know, a huge, a huge issue. And I saw it in myself carrying, even if it was organizational stress, you know, back into the household and being all pissed off the moment I walked through the door. And one of my guests, one of the military special operations community was talking about he and his wife always had a routine. She always made him a certain meal when he was about to go and deploy. And then they always had a, a kind of welcome home meal when they came back. So they had this kind of, you know, this, this, this sequence, this, this, um, I'm forgetting the word now, but yeah, the, this, uh, routine that they did. And I think that's a, a hugely undervalued element for us i mean especially for example law enforcement i heard you talking on a podcast with a um a retired cop and yeah i mean you know you're you're out in the community where in theory you don't trust anyone and as we're seeing more and more often now sadly that's you know justified too and then you immediately walk through the threshold of your home and now your dad and husband and you know so it makes perfect sense to to punctuate whether it's from a long deployment whether it's for a 12 or 24 hour shift what are some of the good um, kind of solutions or or things that you've seen people do, um, you know, good ideas for responders and or families to create that space um, while still acknowledging responder A was out doing this, but uh, while they were, you know, family member B was being a single parent for 12, you know, 24 hours, four months, whatever it was. Right. Well, that's a, you just raised another one of my favorite things, which is rituals. You were calling them routines. But that's the I word I was that, looking for. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, but, <laughs> I mean, I think rituals are very important to mark transitions. And um, I never leave the house or come home to the house that I don't, that my husband and I don't give each other a kiss. It'll, you know, teeny kiss, right? So, um, and we have our good night rituals. And, and it's, it's um, my parents were married 56 years and they had uh, two drinks before dinner every night. And they sat down and debriefed each other, I guess, during the day. So I think rituals are incredibly important to mark passages. And that's one of the dreadful things about COVID that people could not have funerals or, or weddings or anything else, but that they couldn't mostly the funerals was Heartbreaking to hear about that. So um, I think every family can work something out. And, you know, one of the things I hear from first responders is don't, I walk on the front door and usually it's a she, hits me with a problem or or what, what her day is. So I think that talking to each other, ideally these kinds of conversations are had before the poop hits the fan. Right. So um, and, you know, maybe somebody coming home from work needs a time to decompress a little bit. 
I live across the street from a charming young couple and they have three little kids all under the age of six. And I have sometimes seen him drive up at five o'clock at night coming home from work and she is standing on the front door holding the baby, you know, clearly at the end of her rope. And he's just coming home from his job. So I guess he does. It, it's the, we call it the arsenic hour. Everybody has needs and nobody has anything to give. So to talk about try, how we can manage that, you know, practically speaking, that's the moment that the dog's going to pee on the floor and the pot's going to boil over. I know. So, um, but talking about what to talk about, where to talk about, when to talk about it. For families to keep their expectations down, I think I give an example in that chapter of somebody really wanting their husband to get all ready for Christmas and he just didn't have it in him. So to maybe make things, uh, uh, to go back to normal, but in slow steps, don't expect things to be the way they were before the deployment. Um, for the firefighter point of view, I mean, some of the women that I interviewed, we're just talking now about the, the 24, 48-hour uh, shift, is that they felt that their husbands felt so guilty about being away at the fire station and not seeing their children that they came home and broke absolutely every rule <laughs> the mothers had established, you know, like you can't eat this and you have to go to bed then. And they, they come in and they'd find dad in there giving the kid ice cream and cookies and letting them stay up to 11 out of guilt. So I think that the firefighter needs to respect what the stay at home partner, the, 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 the rules, regulations, guidance that they have established in a home and not come home and change it all out of either a feeling of, oh, I'm the man of the house and I get to do this, or I feel badly because I've missed so much with my kids, so I'm going to try to make it up. Making it up is fine, but not when it contradicts what your partner has established or what you, the two of you as parents have established together. Um, I've heard a lot of, I mean, I think now we're going to bring in organizational stress too. I think when we march our first responders up and pin nettles on them and give them awards, we it should have a similar kind of acknowledgement for the families who stayed at home while the first responder was able to be deployed for a long time and, uh, and a recognition and also a way to communicate with families um, in this day of electronics and uh, the internet, it should be really easy to set up a website uh, on a long deployment where families can check in and see the status of the fire that their uh, loved one is uh, battling or um, just get information about the deployment. And sometimes and it's not always easy to communicate in the field because of, uh, you know, internet is down, phones are down. Um, but it's really important maybe to be able to give information to the family rather than leave them worrying off on their own or to connect families with each other so they can maybe pinch hit. One does babysitting for somebody else and they exchange that sort of thing. So real important for families to have their own support systems. Yeah. Well, I think a, a point I heard you talk, I think it was with Christy, but it's something I've talked about a lot. In Florida, obviously, we have hurricanes. We're in the season now, I think. But there's one bearing towards us as we speak, actually. Um, 
But the number of times I've been called in, whether it's my actual shift, whether it's, you know, being called in outside of my shift to go and protect strangers. Meanwhile, that same hurricane still bearing down on my family. And now the one able protector of the family, I mean, you know, obviously my wife's able protector, but the one trained protector is driving away from the most important people to me on the planet. So how do you handle that? Again, there's, there's definitely guilt. 100%. But, um, it's, for me, it's, it's making sure I've done as much as I can before I leave. So wherever the safest place for them, you know, it's making sure that they have, you know, backups as far as food and water and, you know, a plan. If something, you know, gets worse, where are they going to go? But after that, you know, it, it, it's, to me, it's even worse because if I went down to a war zone and was pulling people out of houses left, right and center, it would be a little more justified. The last one I did, we watched it miss us and it smashed through where I live, you know? Oh. So there was even more guilt when, oh, yes. when oh. your community gets hit harder than where you've been sent to protect. Oh, that's awful. Yes. Or that you're, yeah, you sent some, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's terrible. I'm sorry that happened. Uh, well, yes, we, to get target hardened your own place, but you know, as much as you can before something happens and, and make sure that the, the spouse's, um, who are not first responders know what to do in advance and have emergency plans, escape plans. And, um, and it, that's a hard, again, another hard sell because young people particularly don't want to think about dying or leaving wills and things like that. And uh, nothing complicates grief more than finding that your husband uh, left everything to his first wife. Yeah, that'd be awful. <laughs> and believe me, that happened um, with more frequency than I would wish. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So it's it's really important to think those things through as much as you can. Beautiful. Well, I want to touch on one more subject and then go to some closing questions if you got time. Um, sure. We touched on the, the dispatcher. I'm hoping there's, there's a dispatcher from the Paradise Fire. Um, and we've been talking, but the poor woman, she went through her own, you know, mental health battle after um and then now she's you know knee deep in this year's fire season so but she was featured obviously she, you know the recordings of her her dispatches and the inability to save as a dispatcher sitting in office hearing people basically burning to death in a california town what what are your uh what what are the things that people don't think about about the world of the dispatcher that may be different from fire police you know wildland fire other other communities that we've discussed today funny that you should ask james um i also write mysteries and my mystery protagonist is dr dot meyerhoff dot being my mother's name meyerhoff being my maternal grandmother's name and she is supposed to be counseling cops. And so my most recent book, which is not yet published, I'm actually still working on the manuscript. It will be out in several months as an ebook. Um, and it's called The Answer to His Prayers. And all of my mysteries are inspired by actual real people and experiences that I've had. And this one, this book is about a dispatcher the answer to his prayers is about a dispatcher. And it was inspired by an actual dispatcher I, I worked with who listened to a man burned to death in a house trailer. And 
um, I can't imagine how horrible that was. He couldn't move. He was in a wheelchair. You know, there's a, you know what synesthesia is? Uh, repeat it one more time. Synesthesia. I, I don't think so. It sounds very hard to say, though. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's people, we, you know, we have uh, our senses, our hearing, seeing, you know, tasting, all of that. And it's people whose senses get mixed up. So they might see numbers in color or uh, just some other way. And I was saying that a dispatcher will be seeing with her ears so that they don't. And the, the, the one of my, this was an actual quote. Somebody said this and it got it and made it into the book uh, that cops, um, cop, this cop is being very derogatory about dispatchers. And he said, well, cops see the movie. Dispatchers only read the book. So what a cop will actually, or a first responder has, they can view it, they see what's happening, so they have a, a realistic visual, whereas a dispatcher has to sort of create some of this in his or her own mind. And also a, dis, a, a cop or a first responder, a, fire, a fighter, can discharge some of the adrenaline that's produced by the stress of the incident by, you know, running, jumping, yelling, screaming, whatever, you know, um, they're doing something active. A dispatcher has to remain calm. That is not what, how human beings are supposed to behave in the middle of a high stress incident when your adrenaline system is on high. You're supposed to be able to, ex, you know, exert yourself and dump some of that adrenaline. And when you listen to these dispatch tapes, and the dispatchers are, for the most part, calm as they can be, that wears and tears on the body in a in a negative way. Being so sedentary wears and tears on the body. In most departments I've been in, every single piece of food that's left over from anything or anybody gets put into the dispatch center so they can, uh, many of them are quite overweight it's, and they can't move because the, you know, it's like in their umbilical cord, they're attached to the, their monitor. They, get, they have to unplug to go to the bathroom. They work very long and very peculiar hours sometimes. As you said, they sit in darkness for the most part, and I don't know why. Um, so, well, I do know why. They were, um, many dispatch centers were put in the basement of buildings in case we had a nuclear explosion or a massive earthquake like they did in Mexico City many years ago, that somebody, some not so smart person thought they'd be safe in the basement. Well, it seems to me like in an earthquake, that'd be the last place you'd want to be. Yeah, be under a table. Everyone that's knows that. Right. <laughs> there are some departments, I think Oakland Police has their dispatch center up on the top of the building. And here where I live in San Mateo County in California, their dispatch center is beautiful and it's up high and there are windows around and so they can look out. So... But the idea of being in these darkened rooms, like many of them are, and some of them, you know, they have fish tanks. Like watching fish is going to be calming. Well, perhaps it is, but I think it'd be better to be up where you have actual sunlight and you can see what the weather is. 
Uh, the other stress on dispatchers is that in some places they're considered second-class citizens. They're like stepchildren. That's that, that nasty comment. Well, we, we see the movie, they read the book. They are really the first responders, first responder. Without them, they're the lifeline for first responders. And I don't, very often they don't get the respect that they deserve. They have very long training. In some cases, longer than first re- the, uh, the active first responder does. Um, I have seen times, I'm hoping this has changed when they're left out of briefings, debriefings after an incident. They may not even know how the incident turned out uh, unless an officer or a firefighter takes it upon him or herself to go in and tell them. So they're left with, did the baby really drown? I mean, horrible things that they have to uh, have to listen to. And then the public, you know, sometimes thinks they're, they're just like telephone operators. You know, they don't get, sometimes they don't get the respect they deserve also from, from the public. So um, those are pretty major stresses to have. Yeah. And that's a perfect storm, you know, for all kinds of mental and physical ill health. And I think you know, what's a real eye-opener, what you just, you know, Another aha moment for me just in this conversation, which is why I love doing what I do now. Um, I've heard that concept before on cancellations. So, you know, we get woken up at three in the, in the morning. Oh, it's a cardiac arrest. A heart rate goes through the roof. And then we get there and nothing. So we drive back. Well, we just had the fight with bear response, but there's no bear to punch in the face right. or run away right. from. So then we go back to bed. Well, imagining that that's the case and a perfect example that Chicago shooting we just had the two officers that were shot one female one was killed I haven't heard the tapes yet but apparently that dispatcher was phenomenal but I mean the toll to hear your colleagues your peers being slaughtered on the other end of the phone and you're trying to orchestrate you're the person you're the go-to person that's going to help communicate getting those people the help they need Again, I hugely un- underappreciate it. And I think that there, any agency that allows, you know, uh, dispatch to be berated by, by their people is, is again, lack of leadership because without PD, FD is nothing. Without dispatch, you know, PD is nothing. We're, we all need each other. And the moment we, we, we put ourselves on a hierarchy, then it's just a recipe for disaster, in my opinion. Well, you mentioned something that I didn't mention, which is that in particularly in a small agency, the dispatcher knows all the officers personally, and sometimes is married to them, you know? So um, it, it, I tell this story in the cop book about a dispatcher, a very small department working by herself, um, dispatches an officer who has his wife along on a ride along, goes to a domestic abuse call. Um, the abuser steps out of the house and shoots and kills the officer. They exchange fire and uh, both dead in the driveway with the wife there. For about three or four months after this incident had happened, and this dispatcher was friends with the officer and with his wife. Um, For several months after anybody called with a DV call, domestic violence call, she would say, uh, hang up. She'd tell them, call a psychiatrist. We don't handle these and hang up. She was so traumatized by this. And, and then she could hear people in the hallway walking by, looking in the room and saying, um, what's the matter with her? Why isn't she more upset? Why is she still working? 
Well, she's still working because it's a small department. There was no one to replace her. And so after about somebody from the community complained and they finally, her department finally got her some help. But I mean, what an awful thing to over, not understand what that meant to her and, and the responsibility that she felt. If only, uh, you know, the if only gets us off, right? If only I'd turned right instead of left, if only I'd gone the five seconds faster and we know in, or said this or not said that. So, and we know that very often that is part of trying to be perfect and try to feel that a really good, you fill in the blanks, dispatcher, firefighter, police officer, I really would have handled it differently. I didn't, I got there and I didn't handle it right. Therefore, I'm not good at my job. When we say to people, you know, that person was probably dead before they hit the floor. You are still, you are a great firefighter. You're in terrific shape, but you know what? You still can't break full law of physics. Yeah. Yeah. So. Beautiful. Well, for people listening, I'm um, speaking of fear. My dog just pushed her way in because the thunder's going on outside. <laughs> That's oh, her fear no. response. Um, what kind of dog do you have? A German Shepherd. Oh, lovely. Yeah. So, again, there's a perfect example of yin and yang. Someone breaks into the house, she's going to probably kill him. But th- uh-huh. thunder goes off and, <laughs> and she's soft. So, there we go. <laughs> um, well, you've obviously talked a lot about. Um, you know, stories and your perspectives from your career and you put them in some incredible books. So I Love a Cop and I Love a Firefighter. The second edition of I Love a Firefighter just came out. And as you said, you've expanded some some chapters, you've changed some chapters. There's the Wildlands section now. So I'm sure if people haven't got it yet, everyone listening should, whatever profession you're in, um, an incredible resource, not only for the responder, but certainly the families. So let's start with where people can find getting a copy of those. Oh, well, it's on Amazon, of course. And um, if you, uh, I think it's both an ebook and an electronic, you know, book and a paperback. And if your, de- if your department wants to get it for all of its employees or all of its new hires that's, or all of the academy attendees, um, you can either go to Amazon or you can go directly to my publisher, Guilford dot com g-u-i-l-f-o-r-d dot com and ask for the sales department and they will uh they'll discount books for departments particularly if you're buying in bulk and it's a uh this is a bit self-serving of course but it it's really a good way for department to reach out to new and to its employees to say look put a little money behind what the slogans are and say, here, we're really thinking about you and we're caring about you. And we are trying to give you some ways to help yourself get through this career because there's lots of practical, as you know, ideas and tips in the book. So um, I would, of course, I would encourage that. Beautiful. Well, talk to me about independent bookstores too, because I know that's a passion of yes. yours and we all yes. go to Amazon or, you know, Barnes and Noble or somewhere. Right. So, well, if you have an independent bookstore in your town, definitely go there. They, so thanks for remembering that they, they really need help. And if they don't stock the book because it's for a specific readership, um, ask them if they'll order it for you and they will. And then dealing with, uh, dealing with the, Traditional book suppliers, they will be able to return any unsold books, which is what usually an independent bookstore worries about. 
So I, that would be great. Also, your library. Um, if you ask your library to order a copy, uh, most libraries have uh, uh, my books. So Brilliant. I would encourage that too. Beautiful. Well, the first closing question I'd love to ask, I don't know if I asked these when we first talked. So I think it was a newer thing. Um, you, you know, you've got the books we just discussed. Obviously, you've got your your um, fictional novels as well. Is there a book written by someone else that you love to recommend that can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated? Well, in terms of our discussions, um, Stephanie Kahn, C-O-N-N, has a book out. I'm going to look for the title. Increasing Resilience in Police and Emergency Personnel. Then firefighter Tim Dietz. Do you know Tim? Um, I do not actually know. Oh, well, you might want to have him on your program too. Tim Dietz wrote a book called, I have to go look again. I like this book. Uh, uh, many of the books are in, listed in the firefighter book, the ones for firefighters, Scenes of Compassion. And Tim is a retired firefighter. You might want to talk to him. He talks about what, compa you know, compassion is our Achilles heel. So he talks about that. Nick Arnett just uh, published a new book for first responders. It's not in my book. Um, and I can, that, it's upstairs. I can't remember the title, but you could probably just Google it. And then I have one that I liked. It's also in the, in the, so any of the books listed in my fire, in the bibliography of I Love a Firefighter will be helpful to people. I often recommend to families any books written by um, John Gottman, the marital therapist. He's got a ton of them out there. It's G-O-T-T-M-A-N and his website. You can take uh, self-assessments about how your relationship is doing. And he's got quite a credible uh, marital researcher. And then, you know, I can recommend lots of mysteries. I like mysteries. Uh, <laughs> but I can't, I can't, um, yeah, at the moment, I can't think of anything else. Uh, uh, books on trauma, are you interested in that? Yeah, man, any, anything, literally, any subject well, whatsoever. Vander, all of Vanderkolk, V-A-N-D-E-R-K-O-L-K. I think his book, I can't remember the title of it either, but The Brain Dot Lies, The Body Doesn't, something like, it's a title, something like that. Was he the one that wrote The Body Keeps the Score as well? That's it. That's okay. it. Oh, that's the one. Okay, brilliant. So that that's a really, a really um, good book. Then there's a book by my Buddhist teacher, which I would recommend. It's called The Issue at Hand. It's short, easy to read. Um, and his name is Gil Fransdal, F-R-O-N-S-D-A-L. Well, that's uh, that's quite a list. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, and then, what about movies and or documentaries? Any of those that you love? Well, you know, I haven't, I haven't been to, I haven't been to the movies in a year and a half, of course, or more. But I have watched. Well, you know, I hear something. If people sign up for my newsletter at my website, just go to ellenkirschman.com. I often do book reviews and movie reviews and television reviews on the newsletter. So um, uh, I think that would be um, a good place for them to get 
you know, that's not really all about first responders necessarily. There's something about it, but I do a lot of that. And also um, uh, cooking and recipes because my husband is a retired contractor and he um, cooks up at the retreat for the spouses. Oh, we wouldn't talk about the spouses retreat. Can we? Yeah, please, that? please. We've got all the time in the world. Okay. So at the First Responder Support Network, as I mentioned, there are two kinds of retreats, one for first responders and then one for significant others and spouses that you can read more about them at the frsn.org. And we originally, when this started out, uh, the founders of it, Anne Bouchot, Dr. Anne Bouchot and Dr. Mark Kamina thought that maybe two, three days and we'd be listening to um, spouses coming in and talking about their first responder mates critical incidents. Well, as it turned, Anne Bouchot is married to Joel Faye, who's a police officer. So she had first, not only was she a psychologist, she had firsthand experience as a spouse. Um, well, three days really wasn't enough. And what the, uh, what the clients were coming in to talk about was not their spouse's incidents, but about really troubled marriages. Being married to someone who has blatant PTSD, being married to somebody playing second fiddle to the job, uh, being married to someone who the job had changed so that a once familiar person had now turned into a stranger, um, being married to somebody who treated you like a suspect, um, being married to someone who was drinking, probably self-medicating. So there were any number of uh, issues that came up, including the fact that many of the, they're mostly women, we have some men who come in, but mostly women, many of the women had serious traumas in their own life. And whether or not they were related to a first responder as a way of staying safe, I don't know. That would be a speculative thought. But um, it, it, this was, again, another incidence for them of abuse and trauma. And feeling as though living with somebody who had such an important job, you couldn't have needs of your own because that person was really important. And they, uh, a lot of codependent behavior. Uh, my his needs are more important than my needs, and uh, I'll um, I'll be unhappy, cover up, do more than my fair share, because what he does is so important. Where where he's telling me what he does is so important, and so the the program has then extended to be the same amount of time that the um, first responders retreat is. Uh, we now have, I think it's a four-year waiting list. We don't have any other programs like this. And we see um, uh, women in really pretty dire straits because they're caught in a, a, a marriage that they don't know what to do with. And they're very often being abused, not necessarily physically, although that happens, we see that too, but more emotionally and verbally. Uh, by somebody, you know, your example of coming home, being angry at work, at your job, and the effect that has on the family. And then if you are the, if you are someone that is a kind of person who won't talk about why they're angry, then your family is reading your, we call it the face, what face, 
does he have on when he comes in the front door? And if he won't talk about it, you know, if you, the traditional answer, are you okay? Yeah, fine, just fine. If that person won't talk about it, then you think, well, maybe they're mad at me. Or the way that being, we have what we call the emergency responders exhaustion syndrome, something we talk about that's being angry, exhausted, depressed um, from work and then taking it out on the family and how do you deal with that? So we have serious stuff to talk about uh, at these uh, retreats and to try to get, and the women come in mostly, um, expecting that we're going to teach them how to help their husbands who have PTSD. And well, that's exactly what we're not going to do. And we tell them that we can't, we cannot deal with someone who's not in the room for one thing. This is about you, not about him. And, and sometimes I know the him because I've done his retreat and now she shows up. Uh, and, and I will never, never cross. I will not talk about this person. I will not even admit that I did their retreat. They may know that because the husband may have used my name. But um, so we're really trying to, because these first responder jobs contaminate home life so much, that you try to talk about how to separate yourself from that, how to take care of yourself, how to be a responsible um a responsible spouse, but also not be a self-sacrificing person who is a miserable and, and how to take care of your children because they get caught up in this. And in some cases, um, maybe you should leave this relationship because it's really abusive if it doesn't change. And I can tell you that my husband who's in the kitchen cooking and listening to all of this and is part of the entire program checks in, you know, at the morning check-in and, and uh, you know how it is in, in the kitchen. People come in, they want to be in the kitchen, they want to talk. He sometimes is so angry when he leaves. He, because he's angry, again, we're talking about some of the, either the toxic male behavior that is so repulsive to him and how wonderful these women are and how, how burdened they are living with somebody like this or how the job just seems to take over, or how people become, I used to say this, um, James, and, and I can get away with it now because I've been around for a long time, but I only will say that one of the biggest occupational hazards of being a first responder is self-inflation. It's thinking you know everything, and uh, these stupid civilians, including your spouse, they don't know, they don't know Jack, right? So uh, that sometimes comes into play. And it's, it's hard to be, if you're living with someone who has PTSD that's been untreated, it's really hard to be upset and angry with somebody you know to be sick, particularly somebody that you love. So we have to begin to separate what, what PTSD is and how it is not an excuse for abusive behavior or self-destructive behavior, because that happens too. So these are, and the difference between doing a first responder retreat and a spouse's retreat, with the first responders are all sitting there with their hats pulled down over their eyes, their arms crossed, and they're looking very mad and grumpy and like they want to be anyplace else in the world. And it sometimes takes one or two days, to, it's like pulling teeth to get them to talk. Not always. 
the spouse's retreat, you can't turn that faucet off. I mean, the minute we start the meeting, <laughs> there everybody's, I mean, it would be the rare client. We had one at the last retreat I did, but it would, and she was also a first responder. So maybe that's why. Um, it'd be the rare one where people, it just flows out because they've been holding so much in. And because women are more talkative by and large, and because they are less apt to be penalizing themselves for not, you know, being a, a, a tough guy that they need, they need, they need to be listened to so badly. And then the, what we see, of course, in both kinds of retreats, because we're building community there, is that they, they become each other's family. And they go on to stay in touch. Many of them have their own Facebook groups, talk to each other, and they're followed up by peers as well uh, for at least 90 days. So we're, we're giving people a foundation and a support system that they, an extended support system that they probably don't have at home. Beautiful. So where can people find those if they're interested, even if it's four, four okay. years away? Yeah, um, frsn.org and just look at the re look at what's written about the retreats. There's a lot of the information there. Have you not had anybody from the, the first responder support? I mean, Christy was there. So, yeah, I think I want to say I have. I'm about to hit episode 500. So, you know, my, wow. little, my, my oh, colander yeah. that is my brain tends to, you know. Good for you. <laughs> Goodness, that's terrific. So, but I think oh, so. Joel Fay. Um, I don't think so. So let's let's transition to the, to the next question. So I always ask people: Are there people you recommend to come on this show as guests? So who who yes. would be a good people Joel, to do? Definitely, Dr. Joel Fay. He was a police officer for thirty five years. He's one of the founders. And um, you get him at joel.fay at gmail .com. He is a terrific trainer. Goes all over the state and the United States, we train together sometimes, but uh, uh, teaching resilience and uh, about PTSD. And he's a great trainer. And he gets a lot of respect because of his long years as a police officer. Um, and he's somebody else like yourself who did some terrific things in his last agency that he was at, uh, uh, built a, I think it was a model, a national model for dealing with homelessness couldn't get a position, nothing, you know, too much. Too, he was, he was too smart, too, uh, too successful. You know how that goes. Politics can move away. Um, and he's, uh, we teach peer support together sometimes. So he's terrific. So I'd recommend him. Um, oh, Mark Kamina. He's the one who's developed the safer, uh, uh, which is the assessment for first responders. Brilliant. Oh, and then Jana Price. That was another one, wasn't it? it? Uh, Jana Price Sharps. Sharps, and okay. She is in a, a, a podcast called Whole, W-H-O-L-E. That's in the book. And she does a lot with um, first responders. Okay, so then the last question before we make sure everyone knows how to find you, know, you online, if there's any social media, what do you do to decompress? How do you offload the, the, the uh, contents of your plate, as it were? You know, I have a Teflon brain, and stuff just seems to float out of it. I, I'm not, I mean, over the course of 40 years of dealing with this, there have been some terrible, terrible incidents, and I will talk to my fellow consultants. Um, 
but yeah, to talk to, yeah, I think leaning on my, um, leaning on my colleagues uh, is something that really helps. Um, talking to my husband really helps. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I don't think I'm the really best person at self-care, at least my husband would tell you I'm not, um, uh, because I'm sort of a workaholic, but uh, I do exercise on a regular basis. I, you know, I eat well, when I need therapy, I'll get therapy. Um, uh, yeah, just that that sort of thing, and 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 my uh, practice of my study of Buddhism has been incredibly helpful. And uh, once a week, we go to a meditation center and and uh, do some meditation and listen to the Dharma talk. And that that's all online, of course. It has been for the last eighteen months or something. And uh, being part of that community uh, is very helpful, I think, because it just it's. It gives you some um, practical ways to consider being what it's like to be a human being. We'll put it that way. Um, so all of all of that's helpful. And I, I don't have any. I'm a person with no hobbies at all. Um, <laughs> occasionally, I've taken up needlework or something. But I like to cook. I'm you know married to the, the world's best cook, so that, you know I learn a lot from him. But I find ways to sort of try to. Just calm myself down, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, what I'm getting as well, you know, with the way you're talking about and your husband, Steve, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it just takes me back. I just did basically half uh, an interview. We're going to we're going to carry on with uh, Dr. Edith Eager. Um, and she was a she's a psychologist, but she actually was an Auschwitz survivor as well. Oh my. And so what's fascinating is it kind of reminds me of what we've been discussing when you think about the marriage dynamic, especially. She's obviously, you know, a walking example. She's, she's about to turn 94 of how you can overcome trauma within yourself, you know, whether that's the, you know, the husband or wife or whether it's the responder. Um, but also she has a very powerful story because she got divorced and then she remarried the same man. And oh. she basically, I think if, if I'm putting this right, they hadn't dealt with their own traumas and they divorced and then they did self-work. And then when they came back together, they were the kind of people that were actually meant to be together. So even when it feels like, you know, there, there's such a, um, uh, you know, a barrier between the husband and wife. And as you said, we do change in this. How can we not change through this profession? Understanding that it's not lost, but it's going to take work from from both parties, or as you said, understanding that that you're not supposed to be together anymore. But um, yeah, it was a really interesting perspective that you know you may be the perfect people, but you have to have the courage to address your trauma and grow from that first. Yes, yes. Um, another name that, that she's interesting. I've not I've not heard of her. I have to look her up. Another name is uh, Joel's married. Joel Fay is married to Dr. Anne Bouchot, B-U-S-C-H-O. So Anne is both a police spouse and she is an expert on collaborative divorce. So if you wanted to do a program on divorce, she'd be somebody uh, to talk to. And she has a website. Um, so I think you can Google her too. And she has a relatively new book out on something called Nesting bird nesting in which the in a divorce or a separation the children stay in the home and the parents 
have separate places to live and so that it doesn't disrupt the children. So rather than they moving from dad's house to mom's house, mom moves in and moves out, dad moves in and moves out. I like that idea. I mean, it involves three houses, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you've been through this, I know. So yeah, so the kids don't have to change school and don't have to, you know, change familiar surroundings. So she she might be a good person to talk to, too. Absolutely. I think it would be a great conversation because sadly that's, you know, rife in our profession. I've heard, I think we talked about it in the first one. I don't think it's linearly you know, as bad as everyone says directly to the job, but I think generationally and, you know, so many elements that, yeah, we do find a lot of us have, have, uh, you know, gone into marriages with all the best intentions and madly in love and, you know, find ourselves on the other side. And there's nothing more heartbreaking than, you know, listening to a, a firefighter in tears, understanding why he can't put together what's broken. Yeah, it's true. I'm getting a message that I have a low battery here on my uh, my computer because I plugged you into a, a, a camera. So, um, oh, how to get in touch with me? Yeah, Go I was going to ask that. Let's just do that quickly and then I'll, we'll say goodbye. www.ellenkirschman, K-I-R-S-C-H-M-A-N.com. And uh, I'm on Facebook. You can follow me on Facebook, but I'd love it if people would sign up for my um, newsletter. I'm also on Psychology Today, their online blog. And I guess you just go to Psychology Today blog and and search for my name. And um, I'm on Instagram, but not very much. That's that's how I take care of myself and sort of get rid of some of the social media stuff. You're probably swimming in it, but... um, yeah, so that's how to get in touch with me. And um, you can email me through my website if anybody want, any of your listeners do. You're doing a great service, James. This is terrific. Well, thank you so much. I mean, you know, your books are incredible. They're so pertinent to our professions. And, uh, you know, just the discussion today, the lens that you have working with responders for decades and decades, you know, you're one of the voices that we need to hear. One of the ones that's, you know, seen the good and the bad, seen the kind of genesis of, uh, of mental health in our profession. So I urge everyone listening to buy the book and I can't thank you enough for being so generous. We talked for two hours. So thank you so much. No wonder I'm running out of battery. <laughs> All right. Thank you too. Take care.